Welcome to the Talks on Law California MCLE podcast, interviews with leading attorneys, professors, and judges on important and thought-provoking legal topics. And now for the interview. Welcome back to part two of our interview with Professor Richard Rafalt of Columbia Law School. Guest host Suraj Patel will be exploring deeper into topics of super PACs, dark money, money in politics in general, and we'll end with some ideas of reform. So without further introduction, back to the interview. Is the right to be heard for millions of people being drowned out by the right to be heard by a few people? That's a huge question. And certainly this process gives a relatively small number of people with a relatively large amount of money a relatively outsized influence on the process. And, and the Supreme Court in the last, really since the Buckley case in 1976, has been almost consistently, there were a couple of hesitations, but certainly in the 10 years that began in the middle of the 2000s, they've been consistently hostile to any notion that equality has any place in this. Their view is that you get into a dangerous game once you start limiting spending, limiting communication in the name of equality. While the law is uh, speaks that way, there is clearly a consensus across political spectrum that there's too much money in politics. I, I would disagree with that, uh, although you're, you're, at the, right, at the you're, you're, level. you're right descriptively. There probably is a consensus there's too much money in politics. I'm, I personally disagree with that there's too much money. I think there's too much lopsided money. I mean, you know, we talk about how much is this, you know, how much is an election going to cost? Let's say the presidential election in 2016 cost $10 billion, which is not out of the question. My guess is, and people have done studies on this, probably more money was spent, uh, will be spent on yogurt or on toothpaste uh, in any given year than on the presidential election. Teeth are important. Teeth are important, but I think who the president of the United States is is even more. Oh. Uh, potentially. Um, and, you know, or you look at the, uh, the amount of money spent on automobile advertising, not the cars, but the advertising itself typically is more than the amount of money spent in advertising in an election. So, I don't think, I, I agree with you, a lot of people think that there's too much money. I think the real problem is where the money comes from and how it's split up in some ways amongst the candidates and the other participants. It's just seemingly an accountability problem mm-hmm. when money comes from a very small number of sources for nearly mm-hmm. every election and then the rest of us don't have much of a vested game. It, Most it, of us don't get affected that much by who. It, 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 it seems, you know, inconsistent with it, the notion of one person, one vote. I mean, you know, we vote, but we also, the, the process of influencing the election is pretty important, too. And one per, we still respect the idea that everybody gets to vote and everyone gets an equal vote. But the election campaign is a big part of the electoral process. Uh, the, the ability to raise money is very important to deciding who gets to be a candidate. Uh, some people call it the wealth primary, which, you know, is, in some ways occurs a year before the real primaries. Um, affects the kinds of messages that get heard. I agree with you, the inequality problem is a real problem. It's not one that the Supreme Court has recognized. And it means that uh, unless and until the court changes its mind, we have to use a little bit of ingenuity in trying to uh, deal with it. Self-funded candidates often say that they are only accountable to the people, that they're not accountable to any donors. Mm -hmm. Couldn't the same argument be made for a candidate who is accountable to one billionaire donor? who then just gets to actually do as much for the public good as possible. Yeah, I mean, you could say that. I mean, the, the, advan- the advantage of, of, having, of being able to be totally funded by a, 
one or a very small number of super wealthy people, it does kind of save time. <laughs> I mean, a lot of candidates do complain about the amount of time they have to spend fundraising, uh, the amount, the, it, it, it distracts them from being in contact with the voters and being out with the people. You know, if you know, we're able to, if somebody was willing to write a check for each candidate and here's a, here's a half a billion dollars, go run for president, or here's a hundred million, go run for governor, you know, you have to raise a single dollar again. I guess there's a certain amount of advantage in resulting in voter contact. It seems just sort of in tension with some of our basic ideas of, uh, of political equality and democracy that um, it's, it's basically sort of giving up the game and saying that some people are by definition gonna just have a huge amount more influence on the political process. And it's an influence based not on the quality of their ideas, but on how much money they have. And you know, we let money matter for a lot of things in our society. The question is, should it matter that much in deciding how we govern ourselves? That's, in some sense, the fundamental question. Professor, are there any examples of people donating large, people donating any sum of money to a, a group to get certain candidates elected, and that group goes out and runs ads that are completely unrelated to the original purpose? Sure, I mean, in the sense of the, the, the message uh, that of an ad may not necessarily relate to the motive of the spender. So there's a famous case that was in the Supreme Court involving a West Virginia, the election for the West Virginia Supreme Court. In many states, uh, judges are elected. There was a very prominent uh, a coal company, coal mine operator, had a <coughs> excuse me, pending case in the court. He was very concerned about the incumbent chief justice and you know, wanted to see him defeated. Uh, and he funded a very extensive set of ads which had nothing to do with coal or tort liability or the kinds of issues he was specifically worried about, but basically ran a set of messages along the lines of the incumbent was uh, soft on child molesters. The name of the organization was called For the Sake of the Kids. Classy. Classy, exactly. And I mean, I think there are other, this is not unique, although I think this one got a lot of attention, of other organizations where your, the organization's issue might be primarily economic and regulatory, but the ads they run are more hot button, social issues about crime, welfare, uh, things like that. You know, I find that money doesn't always work. Clearly, many, many candidates who spend more than, and have more spent on their behalf than others lose, many times. Mm -hmm. um, and I think that's partially because there's accountability in a high profile election. Mm -hmm. You can, once you're at the table, mm -hmm. you better have a good message. But in these kinds of cases, for a, court election or a local election where there, aren't, there isn't that much scrutiny. I think that's where um, the accountability thing breaks down. I think there's something a lot, a lot to that. I, my view is that money uh, is necessary to make a candidate credible sometimes, to get them in contention, uh, to get, so they can get their message out. But beyond that, it's gonna turn on many other things. It's gonna turn on the, the partisan balance in a place. It could be that if you've got a place which is really lopsidedly one party, Candidate for the other party could spend a ton of money. Might not make is may very well not make it through. Uh, background issues. This is you know is this a year? Is crime a big issue or international terrorism or the economy? Uh, who else is on the ticket? Personality. Even in some of these really down ballot elections, uh, candidate's last name, the ethnicity of the last name may be a real plus or a real minus, or even the gender of the first name. But publicly so, financing elections, say if that's yeah. the solution, doesn't that remove a huge? Uh, form of validation for a candidate. So, you know, getting raising money, mm -hmm. being able to convince people to give you money mm -hmm. does signal to people that you're serious, that you're 
Right. There, and there's something to that also. Uh, people have pointed out that a lot of self-funded, most self-funded candidates don't do well because one of the things about being a self-funded candidate is you haven't gotten other people to give to you. I shouldn't say some do very well. I mean, so, but a number, but on balance, self-funded candidates, it's kind of a weakness because they're not getting other support. Yeah, there's something to the idea that, that getting people to give you money is a measure of your credibility as a candidate. The question somebody says, how much? Uh, is, does, I mean, the deep question, is collecting, you know, $10 each from 1,000 people, does that say less than collecting $10,000 from one person? The way in which some, self, some public funding programs work is they do rely on the candidate to raise some money in order to qualify. Uh, to, be, to be eligible, but then after you've proven that you have uh, a relatively broad base of support in small donations, then public money is provided, whether through the form of matching or leverage or just a flat grant for everybody who qualifies or some people propose other systems we could talk about. I think you're right that being able to raise some money is a mark of your credibility as a candidate. The question is, you know, how much should we how much should it matter that you're raising it from very wealthy people as opposed to a large number of relatively small givers? I mean, all viewpoints are not equally valid. So there is uh, an argument to be made that says, you know, I could raise from flat earthers. I could mm -hmm. raise maybe $1,000, $1,000 donations and all of a sudden mm -hmm. be on the same plane as you. Uh, the, the, the con law person in me sort of wants to reject that your idea that all, all viewpoints are not equally valid. I think we have to start out by assuming that all viewpoints are equally valid, at least at first blush. And uh, um, but then, but then raising money may be right. a signal that s some are yeah. more valid than others. I think it's important that that um, that candidates be able to show that they have some kind of base of support. <clears throat> but the question we're talking about: the amount of dollars as a base of support, or the amount of people? Because you can raise the same amount of money from one very wealthy donor or a large number of middling donors who give small amounts of money. So you could get you know, $50,000 from one person or $50,000 from, I'm having trouble with the math here, from 5,000 people who each give $10. Are that, is that equal in showing that a candidate is a serious candidate? Should we treat them equally or should we think that maybe there's some value, some more value, the candidate has been able to raise the same amount of money from a large number of small donors. That, that's, the, that's really the question here in terms of figuring out, uh, in thinking about to what extent is fundraising ability a, a mark of the credibility or the seriousness of a candidate. I mean, that leads me to a point, I guess. Technological changes, in that it was important or essential, it is essential to say that elections are about disseminating information about yourself. Mm -hmm. And I get that you'd need money to disseminate information on a scarce medium like television or radio and newspaper. But with the almost, with the internet, the ability yeah. to disseminate information is free. So shouldn't we need less money than more as that, our elections get? That's a great question. And people have been raising this issue since I would call it the dawn of the internet age, which I'm not quite sure when that was. But let's say around the 2000, 2004 elections. People are saying, the campaign finance problem is going to be solved. Solve itself. It's going to be solved because the cost of elections is going to drop dramatically. So far, it hasn't happened. So far, instead of the internet replacing television and radio and other forms of communication, internet just gets layered on top. Um, I'm, and I don't, I'm not enough of a techie to know why that is, 
But I think one reason still is you still have to get people, if the internet is a fantastic place to find what you're looking for, but if you're not looking for this information, it's still costly for the information to find you. That's it's still advertising. There's still a cost for the candidate. If you want to look up a, a candidate and find out what their platforms are and what they stand for, the internet's great. But if you're like a lot of people who don't really care very much about politics, but the candidate wants to reach you, I think it's still costly even on the internet to get that message out. That should say out. something about you as a candidate. And well, you know, but I think uh, most people, you know, are not that interested in politics. They're certainly not that interested in things below the very highest level. They might be following the presidential election, maybe a Senate election, maybe a governor election. Uh, but low-level elections, we have a lot of elections in this country. People don't follow everything. And I think it's still costly, even on the internet, to reach out to people, which is why I think t TV and radio and newspapers and mailings and robocalls are still ways of reaching people who don't necessarily want to be reached. And so we haven't crossed that line. The internet, I think, has become more useful to make it easier to raise money. The internet is a very uh, efficient way of raising large amounts of money from, from a large number of relatively small givers. And we have seen, the last several election cycles, candidates who've done well through the internet raising money. What it has not done yet is reduce the cost of spending, or reduce the cost of communicating. It's just another cost. You still have to craft your message, get your people to figure out how to send it out, figure out who your target audience is, figure out where to send the messages. Mm. So maybe it'll come. People have been saying that you know the internet will solve this problem. It just hasn't has solved it yet. Resident aliens, I think, can give. Let's talk about something different. Yeah. Foreign money influencing our elections. Is there a real danger for this? Well, foreign money is technically prohibited uh, in terms of contributions to federal candidates, federal political parties, federal political committees. Since uh, the candidates, parties, and committees are supposed to keep records of all their donations, of any donation over $200, and file that with the FEC, and the FEC's gotten a lot of criticisms, but most people think they do a reasonably good job on the disclosure part. Conceivably, people could give under $200, and that wouldn't be, and there's no, and the reporting and disclosure rules on that are non-existent. Uh, we don't really report under $200. So conceivably, there could be foreign money, relatively small sums. There were some controversies about this with the Obama campaign, I think, in 2008. If there was foreign money coming in, it was quite, it was in very small sums. What about large <coughs> the, donations the big, the, of foreign money or in, into super PACs or the, into independent That, that would all be illegal if it's being used for electioneering. Uh, foreigners can still participate, I think, in certain levels of uh, public communication. There are some special rules governing lobbying by foreigners and uh, foreign agents. The bigger question, and the one we don't really know they have an answer to, is foreign, what do, sort of foreign corporations or corporations that have a mixture of foreign and domestic shareholders and control. Because prior to 2010, prior to the Citizens United case, uh, foreign, uh, all corporations were prohibited from spending in federal elections. So there was no effort to figure out what's an American corporation and what's a foreign corporation. Didn't matter, they were all prohibited. Uh, so after Citizens United, uh, with corporations being able to give, it now becomes important to figure out what, what's an American corporation, what's a foreign corporation, how do we tell the difference, uh, what's an American subsidiary of a foreign corporation. So how realistic is it that one can evaluate an argument or an opinion without knowing where it came from? Uh, for example, if I said this coffee's terrible, wouldn't you need to know, if I had said it anonymously, you know, whether it just had really picky taste or whether I worked for a different coffee company? 
I think certainly people would be interested in knowing whether you were an employee of a competitor, yeah. I think, you know, I, there's a debate on this, and some people would say, you know, the argument should stand or fall on its merits, and uh, otherwise it's a, it's a danger to sort of evaluate an argument based on who, who's making it. You know, you well, could, the context in which it's made, who's making but, it, but, you, you know, want to know why they're making it. And I think in a lot of political settings, it's actually where these are complex issues, um, and people don't always fully understand all the all of the nuances of a debate, they might find it useful, the voters, that's the they I'm talking about, might find it useful to know who's actually saying something and what their interest is. And Supreme Court's agreed with that. Right, of course <laughs> they would find it useful. Supreme Court has basically said sometimes it's really hard to tell what a candidate's about. When they said that 40 years ago, things were less polarized than they are now and they were more, they were conservative Democrats and they were liberal Republicans and was trying to f figure out what the candidate was about. The court said basically you can get a better sense of who the candidate, what the candidates are about, what they're going to do in office when you know who their backers are. And I think that similarly you can get a better sense of what the real meaning of a message is um, when you know who's who behind it. it. And I think especially we often focus on candidate elections, but if you look at the state and local level, lots of these elections are really ballot propositions, referenda. Those can be surprisingly complicated. Sometimes there's a lot of ones where like no means yes and yes means no. I mean, somebody is, the legislature's passed a law and the referendum is designed to undo it. So if you want to, if you want to in some sense, in, you know, take a reform, you vote no because it's to stop the undoing. There are lots of instances where the way the question is phrased is a little tricky. Sometimes in these ballot propositions, uh, people put competing propositions on the ballot when it looks like one is going to, uh, one is going to accomplish, you know, would have a certain regulatory effect. The regulated industry might rush and get a second one on the ballot, which would be a less uh, less intensive regulation. Voters get confused, so it's often going to be important to know who's behind something. Yeah, maybe we should be able to assess a message on its merits. I mean, if I'm a voter, maybe my shortcut to making these decisions, especially down ballot right, and all these right. things, is that uh, every one of these guys is corrupt and every one of these guys takes money and in the whole, yeah. it just cancels each other out, so let's just go on. I mean, most of the time, you know, things like Republican and Democrat are the, are the things we look to because that tells us something. You know, not every Republican agrees with all, with, on everything, but in general, it's a shorthand for, you know, a position on a whole bunch of issues, uh, similarly with Democrat. It's a shorthand, and so knowing that tells you something. And you know, knowing that a certain industry or a certain group or a union or something is behind a candidate, that tells you something. You might like it or you might not like it, but it does tell you something. Other countries do impose spending limits, and some countries do just public financing. Can you just talk about some alternatives that other mm -hmm. well-developed democracies do to keep the influence of money out of politics? Sure, I mean, the, the role of money in, in elections is something that really comes up in just about every mature democracy. Uh, all, but all the Western countries and non-Western countries as they, be, as they have matured have had, to, have had to address this. And you get a, a pretty wide range of responses. Some places have, are very, very lightly regulated, even less than the United States. Uh, Australia, I think, does very little. Some places are very heavily regulated. In some places, regulate things that we don't regulate and don't regulate the things that we do, that they focus on spending more than contributions. Uh, the one thing that we don't do that a number of other Western countries do is provide free media. Uh, many people for a long time felt that you could address some of this by providing free broadcast time to candidates. I think that does get trickier as, you know, it was easier in, in an era when there were three big networks and they were, and 90% of television was them. 
I think it becomes trickier now as television has spread as, and as the internet has become a major source of information for people. So I'm, you know, I think 20, 30 years ago, maybe the number one reform would have been some kind of uh, free broadcast, free media candidates. Now I think that's, it's not clear what that's, that, that that would solve the problem. Uh, but other countries use spending limits, and sometimes spending limits coupled with the free broadcast. So you get, you, you, uh, there's a limit as to how much you could, you could, how much paid media you could use, but then you get free media. Um, and, and many countries have some form of public funding. Most other countries are more focused on the parties and the candidates. Maybe because of our use of primaries to nominate candidates, and maybe because we have a, the separation of power system where we're not a parliamentary system, but we have a separately elected executive, separately from the legislature. We're a pretty candidate-centered system, and we've been so for a long time. Most other countries, Western and not just Western, um, really are party systems. In some ways, they're a little bit easier to do public funding because they only have one round of elections, the general. They don't always have to worry about the primaries and how do you figure out who gets funded. But that, I think, is the, the main, the main two, th two, three things that other countries do is some combination of um, uh, caps, uh, free media, uh, caps on spending, sometimes focused just on media, sometimes just general, and public subsidies. I think that's an interesting point. We look at spending as a privilege mm -hmm. uh, in this country, as a privilege to disseminate our message or our viewpoints, but I could also see that it's a burden um, if everybody has to give to conduct business. Say, mm -hmm. I mean, you hear this in countries all the time, that politicians are corrupt, so that you can't get anything done without giving money to politicians. And, and we see that at the local level here sometimes. So it's interesting if there's a public financing system that it could actually unshackle people from having to spend at all to get their viewpoints heard. I mean, that would be the idea. I mean, there'd still be spending, but there would be less dependence on large donors. Um, whether it's, you know, one possibility is if you're the nominee of, a, of an established party like the Republicans and the Democrats, you get a large flat grant. And they have to worry about it. That's how, that's how the presidential public funding system was designed. Its major problem is that it wasn't really adequately indexed for, for the rapidly increasing costs of elections. It, it was indexed, but not nearly enough. And so they just didn't give candidates enough money. And it also came with a spending limit. So candidates, serious candidates felt that they were, in effect, engaged in um, unilateral disarmament if they took the public funds with a spending limit. The more recent approach and recent is to, to move away from this large flat grant to the parties, to the party nominees, and to have to focus on some kind of match uh, to require the candidates to raise some money and then to have some match. Uh, the other idea that's out there, which has been used by a lot of academics, it was um, city of Seattle voted to, in a municipal election, uh, voted to adopt it, but it hasn't been implemented yet, is something, something called vouchers where in effect, instead of the government sending money to the candidates, they would send every voter a voucher, uh, let's say $25, and then the voter could decide to give this voucher to a candidate. Wouldn't you need to spend money to convince voters to give you the voucher? That, that's always been my concern about vouchers, actually, as um, that's why I tend to prefer the other systems. Because, it's I mean, like pre-voting. Because, right. You, that, you just created a second I mean, election I mean, you, for you me. picked up exactly what I think is the major problem with vouchers, which is you have to, the candidates have to persuade the voters to give them their vouchers, and that's going to cost money. So, um, uh, but a number of very prominent academics who I respect have proposed vouchers, and it's probably worth a try just to see how it goes.
but I, I do wonder about how you get people to give you their vouchers. But that again is seen as, uh, the, the advantage of vouchers is that it doesn't involve the government, any government, city, state, or federal, deciding who's qualified to get public money. I think the, the, the big nervousness uh, that some people have about public funding is some, you have to qualify and you have to get a certain amount. Who decides who qualifies? Who decides the amount? It's the government. And so people who are skeptical about it are skeptical for that reason, that it gets the, the state in, you know, in a, in a very basic way in deciding who gets money. There was a, a big controversy in New York City during the 2013 mayoral election where a very prominent, one of the, one of the contenders for the Democratic nomination, um, New York City's uh, the Campaign Finance Board said that he, he committed a number of serious violations of the law. And as a result, they were disqualifying him from all public funds. And it was a devastating blow to his campaign. And um, he didn't win. Um, whether he might not have won anyway, but I think, and it was, so his, it was the New York City controller, John Liu, and there were, uh, again, I don't know, I don't remember all the facts of this, but there were some issues in terms of the, uh, the signatures that he'd gotten or the donations that he'd gotten that he'd gotten. Uh, the campaign finance board found that he'd gotten them from so-called straw donors, not real donors. But, you know, it would, they, they, would, they hit him with a very hard penalty, which was a complete disqualification. So the, if, if there's public, a publicly funded system gives the government a big role. In some ways, you could say that all of this campaign finance debate is sort of turns on who are you more afraid of or who are you more suspicious of? I was just the, gov gonna... the government or big business or the wealthy? Um, because anything that you, any regulation is going to be government adopted regulation. And some people think that the government is likely to do only the things that incumbents want or the party in power wants. So they're deeply suspicious of almost any regulation that gets adopted because it's being adopted by the incumbents. Other people think that the real problem is the power of money. And so, in some deep, deep, deep sense, there are these two really competing worldviews. I'd like to think of as who makes you more nervous? A quick break from the interview with Professor Brafault for the MCLE code. This is for those attorneys earning CLE credit for this in California. The code for this interview is 071516. That's 071516. And now back to the interview. Well, it seems we've just thrown up our hands and said, this problem's intractable, and we try to fix it piecemeal, and we're living with a system that doesn't work in either direction. It doesn't limit the yeah. amount of money in politics, and it certainly doesn't limit the government's influence in who gets to be treated as a serious candidate. Yeah, that's pretty close to what I think, although maybe I would be slightly more positive in the sense I would say not so much that it's intractable as it's unsolvable, but I think things can be better. I mean, in other words, I think we may be in a situation now where we have a mix of laws and regulations and practices which really don't work, but there are some things we could do to make it better even if we can't make it perfect, because there really is no perfect. Uh, there's no perfect because we don't have, there's no one right set of principles here, and there's also the fact that people adapt. You know, politicians adapt, uh, interest groups adapt. It may be, even if we had, do, did come up with a perfect system for one election, uh, two elections later it would no longer be working the way we wanted. So, but I do think things could be made better. 
for me, I think some form of public funding would be an improvement. Uh, it would allow uh, more candidates who are not just backed by very big donors to participate, and it would, it would level the playing field not by leveling down, which the courts have been extremely hostile to, but by leveling up, by making it easier for, for small donors and, and the candidates that small donors like to be active participants. I think that would be a step forward. The other thing I think we could do better on is more disclosure of donors to the dark money groups. There, the Supreme Court has not been the problem. The Supreme Court has not gotten in the way of that. The Supreme Court actually likes disclosure. What happened there is that the emergence of the dark money groups is relatively recent, and the problem is that Congress has been unable, for party, uh, party partisan polarized reasons, to pass the necessary laws. I think, there are, I think there are laws that would stand up constitutionally that would give us a lot more information about the donors to dark money. They could be passed. Uh, a few states have passed some laws like that dealing with state elections. That one is, um, that one's doable. We just haven't done it. We've discussed the different constitutional ramifications of different kinds of campaign finance law and expenditure limits and spending limits. How does any of that change after the death of Justice Scalia? It's possible that it could change significantly. Um, campaign finance has, is divisive not just in the public but in the court. Uh, there have been really sort of two really competing philosophies in the court, really going back, say, 40 years, really, to the Buckley case about just how, you know, what are the justifications for regulation and how sensitive should we be to the impact on speech. Uh, and over time, those divisions have actually sharpened. And uh, for much of the period of the 1990s into the middle of the 2010s, the court was very closely divided. For a time, the court was um, uh, somewhat sympathetic to campaign finance regulation. And there was a period of time between the mid-90s and the early aughts, uh, from about 1996 to about 2003, where the court uh, regularly upheld campaign finance laws, usually by a 5-4 vote, 5-4, sometimes 6-3, but usually by about a 5-4 vote. In 2005, I think it was, uh, Justice, Chief Justice Rehnquist died, but more importantly, Justice O'Connor retired, and they were both replaced. Um, Rehnquist had been a critic, had over time had become more critical of campaign finance regulation, and O'Connor over time had been more supportive. And it's interesting to re recognize that O'Connor, I believe, is the last person who was on the Supreme Court who had ever been elected as an elected public official. She had been, I think, the Speaker majority, of the, uh, the leader of one of the Arizona state, state houses. Yeah. So she had actually had real hands-on experience. And over her time on the court, she became more sympathetic, and she was a key part of the 5-4 majority that upheld a bunch of campaign finance laws in the period of the late 90s and early aughts. Her replacement by Justice Alito, his, his view was diametrically opposite. And, and following her departure in the period from the mid-2000s on, the court, I don't know, it was six or seven cases in a row, whenever they were faced with a campaign finance case, uh, they either greatly narrowed or struck down the law that they were presented with. Uh, with what, it, 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 one case was 6-3, all the others were 5-4. And a critical member of that 5-4 block is Justice Scalia. Um, he was very skeptical about campaign finance regulation. He was particularly supportive of the rights of corporations to spend. Justice Scalia was sympathetic to uh, disclosure regulations. Well, other than that, he was a key, as was the majority of the court, including some of the other conservatives. Uh, but otherwise, he was, a, he was a key part of the five-justice block that 
was very hostile to campaign finance law in the, in the, from the period from the mid-2000s on. You know, we don't know what the future will hold. Um, it's unlikely the court will be more hostile to campaign finance regulation. It's possible that we'll be have another shift. And we're about to enter a new era. Uh, even if it's an era that's more uh, sympathetic to regulation, one question is, how far does the pendulum swing? Uh, the court has never upheld spending limits except once in the context of corporations. Is it possible that they'll swing all the way back and be uh, even uphold more regulation than they upheld in 1976? It's possible that it would be a big change. Or it's possible that they'll basically stay where they are but not strike down more. Many things are possible, and it's, I think it's premature to guess, but uh, the one thing that does seem likely is that an era in campaign finance has at least momentarily come to a close of the era of, of from about, I'd say, 2006 to 2016 of regularly striking down things. I think at the very least we've taken a pause from that and we'll see what happens next. For more legal explainers and interviews with the titans of law, visit TalksOnLaw.com. If you're earning MCLE for this interview, you can enter your confirmation code at TalksOnLaw.com slash MCLE podcast to get your certificate. Join us again soon for more cutting-edge interviews on the California MCLE podcast. <laughs>